There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Your weekend home for all things sport. This is The Grill on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live from Barasti. Here's Tom Urquhart. Let's talk rugby if we can. Why? Because the Marseille and Dubai Rugby 7 is just around the corner. Make sure you've got your tickets ahead of what promises to be a cracker of a weekend. First weekend in December. Uh, we'll see the 50th anniversary from the Emirates Airline Dubai Rugby Sevens. In the meantime though, we've got plenty to talk about. Let's get on to the European Champions Cup uh, in just a few moments time. Not though before I've brought you an update or CVR's brought you an update from today's international. Yes, you're right. There is an international going on. The Barbars. Of course, the world famous Barbars, coached by the world famous Eddie Jones. They take on Fiji this afternoon, Tom. And what I can tell you is 73 minutes played. Yeah, wait for this. Fiji 28, the Barbars 17. But as we always know with the Barbars, it ain't over till it's over. What I can tell you is Bastare, what should I say, the retired French international on the score sheet. Andre Estreza, Makizola Mpimpi, the winger that scored that try, of course, in the World Cup final. And the Beast have scored for the Barbars. But as I say, currently they're trailing 28 points to 17. There's still seven minutes left in that international. Some of the scores coming through, the Bristol Bears are demolishing Zebra. They're leading that fixture 38 points to 7. The Newport Dragons are leading Castres 28 points to 10. Leicester Tigers up against Palouse. They are leading that fixture 24 points to 13. And Leinster leading Bennett and Treviso 19 points to 7. So I'm just looking at the uh, Barbarians lineup uh, for today and obviously Barbarians for those that don't know is an invitational side that brings different nationalities under uh, uh, together uh, for a Barbarians week uh, of celebrations training and more uh, Van Staden, Strauss, Van Vick, Matawera few South Africans in there, surely. Eight in, eight in total, Tom, to be perfectly honest with you. And uh, it was quite strange that Eddie Jones has chosen uh, eight, <laughs> eight, eight South Africans, which I was quite surprised of. So I don't know if they'd come cheaply or just available or what the reason was for them being in. But yeah, quite a South African flavor to the team. Interesting is that uh, Buster Ray, he said he was going to play an eighth man this afternoon. Of course, he's the former wow. French international center he said he was going to use him as a back row so yeah quite an interesting team of course they play fiji today then they go down and play brazil and then they end off with playing wales so uh, yeah quite a good fixture there for the barbars interesting also that rory best is captaining the uh, the barbars in what will be his final international game i understand yeah it must be of course he announced his retirement after um, i would say ireland's disappointing world cup campaign a lot of people thought that Ireland would, you know, would go the full distance or at least get into the final. But, yeah, they didn't quite produce the goods as expected. And, but absolute legend of the game, Tom. You know, Rory, I think a, a statesman for, for Ireland, led with example and a fantastic captain. And uh, as I said, he's, an, he's announced his, his international retirement. A lot of players now coming through announcing their retirement. But as I said, yeah, this will be the last of his international duty. But always a great, great leader is Rory Best. Supporter of the Barbarians uh, cause. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I absolutely think it's fantastic, the style that they play. And uh, I just, you know, wish that it, that it didn't come after the World Cup because I kind of feel that, you know, people have watched a lot of rugby now and maybe not as much emphasis put on it as what it deserves. Interesting that Eddie Jones, in stories just broken a couple of hours ago, says that he made two selection mistakes in the World Cup final. He says Marler should have played at loose head prop and he rues not reverting to the Farrell to Alagi Slade midfield. Wow. I don't think it would have changed anything. Just the way South, I think South Africa. I do believe that um, sometimes, sometimes you you just encounter a force of nature, and whether destiny is the right word 
for it, I think South Africa were going to win that match come hell or high water. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the postscript since the Rugby World Cup has been how poor England were in that final, which I think is a bit unfair for South Africa. And it'd be interesting to get from a South African perspective as well. I mean, you were seemingly unbeatable on that day, the South African rugby team, that is. So was it a case of South Africa just being too good or England just being poor on the day? I just think that, that South Africa lifted their game by, by all means. To me, the South Africa backline, that to me was their best game of the tournament. I, I did not see them gel. But I think where England got unstuck against South Africa is they did not expect the onslaught from the forwards. Yeah. And, and I, I just think our tight five were absolutely phenomenal in that game. They, they literally just battered and bruised England for 80 minutes. And, and what happened was when the, when, the, when the starting five boys were tired, they just brought on another five guys which were hungrier, more aggressive, more bruising. I mean, you, you know, all of a sudden Kitsov replaces the Beast. I actually think Kitsov is a, is a better scrummager than, than what the Beast is. And Koch replaces uh, Franz Malaba on the tight head side. And all of a sudden you've got marks in at Hooker that's actually a better scrummager than Bungu Numanami. So I, I just think that, that from a physicality perspective, England maybe got caught a little bit off guard. Yeah, I think that, that's fair. I mean, I, I made the point, I tried to argue devil's advocate perhaps a little bit I was enraging a lot of South African listeners on uh, on, on Sunday's off script the, the day after the final by saying that England didn't really turn up for the game and, and that was not sour grapes I'm just saying that I think there's always two sides to it and as good as South Africa were when you look at how England played against New Zealand where they played essentially perfect rugby for 74 of the 80 minutes the first five minutes of, of, of that match was it was past perfect and yet they looked out of sorts they they were fumbling they were knocking on they they now South Africa were doing a lot to force England into making mistakes as you say Carl they were they were they were basically beating them up and they were they were playing a, a brilliant and a bruising and a belligerent game of rugby themselves but there was a little bit I think of England not rising to the big occasion a and, little bit yeah and 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 I could be criticised for the statement I'm going to make now, but to me, and, and, I, and I've said this before, I feel England in that game lacked leadership in, in, the, in the sense, and I'm not having a dig at, at, at Farrell at all. I think he's a fantastic player. But as a captain, I still got one or two question marks behind him because he just seems to, and I, I might be totally incorrect, I'm, I'm not part of the camp there. When things are not going well with England, he, he's not like a Martin Johnson that can kind of lift them or, or get involved or, or change something. And I kind of feel that's what England lacked on that, on that final day where they just needed that, from a captain's perspective, to kind of, kind of step in, change one or two things or delay one or two things. And, and to me, Farrell, when, when England are under pressure, which they're not very often because they had such a good tournament, he kind of struggles to bring that to the party. See a Kalisa. Kalisi, sorry, your, your, you know, you know, your evaluation of him. John Schmidt, who we spoke to on the show, the 2007 winning captain, yeah, said, yeah. said that this moment with a black captain was more significant than the 1995 World Cup. He said that. I think Francois Pinar had a similar sentiment in the sense that, you know, uh, it, it shows the evolution of the team. It's progressing more and more towards, by merit, a, a an equivocal split of uh, and whether whether it needs to be 50-50 or, or whatever decision has been made. Significance of, of having Sia Khaleesi as captain. Did you read too can much I, into that, Carl? Can I just, sorry, because uh, I'm not qualified to answer this, but the, the reason I want to jump in here is... is 
I find it really interesting. I, I, I think what is being done down in South Africa at the moment with the sort of victory march and the victory parade, etc., and the fact that Khaleesi is so well-spoken and things like that, but I can't help but get away from comments that, you know, conversations you and I have had about South African rugby as early as, what, you know, March this year or something like that, you know, not that long ago, just before the Rugby World Cup, where most South African fans, when they, to be honest, you know, if they were honest with themselves, went into that tournament not really expecting much because... South African rugby had been in the doldrums for so long. I am so glad that South African rugby has has achieved what they have. I'm not taking that throw. There's no sour grapes here at all. I just hope, I hope we're having this same conversation in about six months' time. I, 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 am I sceptical? Yeah, I am massively sceptical whether we're having this conversation in six months' time. Can it can it prevent the, the, the talent drain that, that we've seen in South African rugby over the last couple of years. Is this going to be the, the last plus that puts on it? Maybe for the next couple of months, forever? I'm not sure. I don't think South Africa will ever be a nation like New Zealand, which is a machine at rugby and, and has such an amazing winning record and, 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 is, and is this kind of perceived at times unbeatable foe. I, I always, they, they've always been that kind of, they've been great at peaking for World Cups. I mean, they've won three World Cups. Every time they've made a World Cup final, they've won it. Um, they've often won it as the underdog. They did it in 1995, 2007. They were they were the favourites, rightly so. This year, no one was talking about them, as you just mentioned. They, no one was saying that South Africa, OK, they went into the tournament, they'd gotten their act together, and they went into the tournament alongside England as, as the second favourites to, uh, to the All Blacks. But it wouldn't surprise me if they went through another kind of iffy spell. I don't see South Africa starting to dominate Rugby World Championships, for example. Where, where, where I fully agree with you, and I'm sure a lot of South African fans would, would totally disagree with what I'm going to say now, is to me, this was a quick fix. And, and they got a couple of things right in the A set. World Cup win is a quick fix. I, and, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you why, why I think it was a quick fix. They, they, they brought in Russi. He somehow assembled the team that, that, that he thought with a certain game plan can win it. I felt that a couple of things went our way in, 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 uh, in, in, the, in the World Cup. Japan beating Ireland. We all of a sudden had Japan in a quarterfinal, which I don't care who argues with me. It was always going to be an easier quarterfinal than playing, than, than, than playing Ireland from, from, the, from that perspective. But to your, to your guys' South point... South Africa would have beaten Ireland. No, in, in, no in, six, in six months down the line, and, and what I'm trying to say is I don't think this is a definite fix. I think we were struggling once again because I still believe our administration from, from, a, from a South African rugby perspective is not exactly where it should be. Too much player drain, uh, uh, unions uh, running into financial troubles at, at this moment in time. Rusty Erasmus has now said he will not be coaching the team. Who they are going to bring in as coach? A lot of questions being asked. Do you believe that the best squad of South African players was in Japan? Do you believe the best possible squad? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you, yeah. you know, we, we could always argue about uh, we could always always argue about players where we must really got up our personal preferences as such. Yeah. But I think if you, if you have to look at the core of the squad at 18, I would say 90% of those players. Yeah, absolutely. But only but that was only because Rassi ensured that, that, that you know that, that, that the selection process changed, didn't it? You know, you and I have a conversation. With the fact, you know, how many times have you and I had that conversation? You were going, Fafta Balassi is our best number nine. We can't even select him at the moment. They changed that selection process to bring him back into the mould. Will that be the case moving forward? Tom, they have to. They, they, they've got no choice from a South African perspective. If you, if you kind of look at the way, how much more 
from a from a from a from a money perspective, we can put it as, as, as so much it's so much better for players to play overseas. I mean, if you look at the amount of South Africans yeah. playing the trade overseas at the moment, it's I don't even have the stat at the moment, but it's a ridiculous amount of players. So they will have to start allowing to choose from that international pool and players playing abroad. Otherwise, you will never have a competitive uh, competitive enough team. And I mean, even Rusty came under a lot of you asking me are the best players there. Skull Brits made the the team at the age of 38. There were massive question marks, massive outdraws in 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 South Africa about why you're bringing 38 into a World Cup squad but I think as I said from a different from personal opinions he was he was 90-95% there from, from the squad perspective so difficult question this one for you and I appreciate if you don't if, you, if you're not comfortable answering it but I'm going to ask it to you anyway is that you know another thing that we are all aware of the elephant in the room when it comes to South African rugby is well not actually South African rugby South African sport is quota systems and if, if, if that is an issue and that, what we've seen with, with this World Cup is is, is, is the quota system working in many ways because some of the standout players for South Africa Springboks at this, at this Rugby World Cup were the quota system players whatever you want to call it etc however if that is going to be a sort of strict fixture as opposed to the best players available to selection or quota is that also going to hamstring? Uh, I don't think it's needed at all. I don't think it's needed at all. I think there's, en- there's enough players of... of so we just need to get away with that now. Yeah. I, I honestly think there's enough players, if you want to call them, of, of formally disadvantaged or whatever the name you want to use. it. I, I, I personally do not like to use the word quota, but I think there's enough good players in the system at the moment. The, 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 these, these guys, everybody to me in that team has been selected on merit. They're the best players in their position. As I said once again, personally, you might think, yes, there's a better 10 than, than Andre Pollard or a, a better 6 than Colisio, whatever the case is. But to me, uh, uh, the, the, this whole quota system to me is something of the past because to me there's enough good enough players that can represent the country and represent people, you, you, you know, of, of, of all call it mixed breeds, religions and nationalities within the country. Was the Sia Khaleesi captaincy choice a political move or do you feel he earned it? I think he earned it. I, I honestly, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not just saying that, and I think uh, it was a popular choice. And the reason why I'm saying, if I have to look from the other side of the spectrum, Sia appeals to a lot of people within, within, within South Africa. And, and I felt that, you know, the world, the, 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 the week before the final, I actually watched the semi-final. I was in Cape Town in South Africa. And to me, the way people reacted to that World Cup compared to what they reacted to the 2007 and the 95 World Cup, I just felt there was a better vibe. There was more people interested in the game. There was more people supporting the Springboks. And, and, and to me, in I all honesty... that was the point that John Schmidt and Pienaar were making about the, the greater significance, that it will, it will transcend and it will, it will reach so many more communities in South Africa. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the fantastic thing about Khaleesi is it's giving people belief. You know? if, if, if you, anybody, or you're a young, young man on the, on the streets of South Africa, or you come from an unfortunate upbringing, be you black, be you white, be you pink, be whatever color, you, you, you can become a Springbok captain. And I think this is the fantastic thing of what, what he's brought. He's brought belief to the nation. And, and I think, you know, stronger together, the whole, the whole, uh, the, the whole uh, should I say, the, 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 the notion that they went by through the World Cup, I think was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, yeah him, yes, sorry. No, I'm, 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 being, I'm being bad. I, I shouldn't be, be, shouldn't be saying that. I just, I just want to know, you know, I'm great. And I'm taking nothing away from it. I just want to know how long this can go on for how long this can continue for because we are rolling on a wave uh, of optimism at the moment but i'm not south african but i've got a lot of south african friends including yourself who you know look at this with 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 a sort of wry grin and go okay cool i'll take this i'll be you know three-time world cup champions but how long could this last for 
Tom, in all honesty, you only have to win every four years to make an important sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it for the <laughs> we, we, we'll take it for the next four years. But but to your point, and I, and I said it a little bit earlier in our conversation, we we got a lot of work to do from an administration yeah. perspective. And I, and I think until we get that, we get that right, yes, there, there there will be a lot of challenges happening to, to Springbok Rugby in the near future. But as I said, for me as a fanatical supporter, if we can get it right every four years, I'm pretty happy. Well, two, because you've got the Lions tour in a couple of years, <laughs> and that's a biggie. Who's the favourite right now? As things stand right now, South Africa would be the favourite to win that Lions tour. Yeah, you'd think so at, at this yeah. moment in time. But I think, you know, if, if you look at the current... If they can keep the team together. That's yeah. my point, though. That, 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 and this is the point I'm trying to make. If they can keep that, that current group of team, that, 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 and, and, the, and, the, and the selection process doesn't change... Because a lot of those players, are, you know, A, there's a lot that are retiring. Yeah. B, there's a lot that will be attracted by big contracts up into Europe. If, if, if South Africa is able to maintain this sort of open-minded policy of being able to select the best players they've got available to them wherever they're playing in the world, which Razzie seems to have brought in, then kudos. But I think to, to your point too, Tom, I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how these international clubs start approaching the contracting of these, of these call it South African players. Because at the end of the day, I'm contracting you to come play for Sales Sharks, but three months of the year or, or two months of the year you're spending on international duty, which could be the most crucial part of the club season. Yes, a World Cup we can understand, but I think if you look at these club owners back in, in, in France and the UK, they will be start looking at this point where they turn around and go, okay, look here, we're willing to give you a five-year deal, but then there's no international duty from that perspective. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how they, they adjust to it. But I think this core of players, they won't be able to keep together. And I think it will be very interesting to see who the coach will be for when the Lions tour come, what kind of approach he will have. Because to me, R Rossi decided on a certain way he wanted to play. He, cho he chose a core of players that were available to him that he thought he could get the best out of. And as I said, it played into, played into his favor. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we talk more sport. This is The Grill, live from Barasti, where the game is always on. Let's talk cricket if we can for a moment because we've got a result to bring you from a little earlier on. India beating Bangladesh in their Test Match series a little earlier uh, today on day three of the five-day Test Match. Uh, India winning by an innings at 130 runs, another convincing victory for the Indian cricket team. Uh, currently underway at the moment in the international T20, Afghanistan taking on the West Indies over uh, in Afghanistan. West Indies needing 87 runs to win from 6.5 overs. Yesterday we saw the start of the T10 down in Abu Dhabi as well. So Robbie and I were talking about uh, the fact that there is plenty of sport to look forward to here in the next couple of days. Brazil against South Korea, the DP World Tour Championship coming to a conclusion and of course the T20 with some big signature names in town. Yeah, yeah the, of course it's great to see the T10 come back to Abu Dhabi. We're looking forward to hopefully getting down and catching a few games. You planning on Getting down there, so Tom. I know you've been playing a bit of cricket yourself lately. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been, uh, I might have been. Might have, might have, might have pulled the, uh, the, 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 the kit out of uh, the bat. Well, there, was a, there were certainly cobwebs. The I forward defensive. I was wondering why he's holding the mic in his left hand the whole. I've cricked my neck tonight. That's for sure. Because uh, yeah, it's been a, an interesting couple of days. We're down at the uh, ICC Cricket Academy over the last two days for the Darjeeling Cricket Club 50th anniversary. So congratulations to Darjeeling celebrating their 50th anniversary uh, over the course of the last day. 18 teams they had. 18 teams for the Sixes this year. And you boys know me well. Uh, sixes not exactly my forte when it comes to to, to cricket. I am a uh, I'm a I'm a four day a five day kind of man who likes to hold up an end. So when you're given 30 balls to score as many runs as you can. Uh, it's not really my forte, but... Um, so, so what you're trying to tell us, you made no runs? 
I, I didn't. I, I didn't actually pick up a bat in in in, 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 in anger over the last two days. Uh, not at all. No, I did a bit of fielding, but that was it. Interesting to see comments coming out of Abu Dhabi actually for the T10. Yuvraj Singh. In fact, he's talking about hundred ball cricket, and he's talking about a potential revolution similar to T20. Is Yuvraj Singh? He said close to a revolution. I think the new 100 ball format will be an exciting format because it's not T10, it's not T20, it's about 100 balls. This is comments that have been made uh, in the last 24 hours or so. He says, I think uh, I could feel it could be an exciting format, close to a revolution, but we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't buy it. I think so, it's a gimmick. So it's interesting because uh, we had Jeff Miller, Jeff Dusty Miller, uh, <laughs> former England and Derbyshire cricketer and a former um, uh, chairman of selectors for England as well. He was the guest speaker for the Darjeeling Cricket Club on Thursday evening at the gala dinner uh, uh, on the Thursday night at QE2. Why they do a gala dinner the night before a cricket tournament is beyond me. But anyway, uh, uh, great speaker, absolutely brilliant speaker. If you ever get an opportunity to see Jeff Miller, Jeff Dusty Miller, do because he's a very, very good after dinner speaker. His point exactly that, saying, look, we, we, we run the risk now of meddling too much with the game. Meddling with too much with the game, but with a game that has stood the test of time for so long in the test format, the one-day format, and more recently in the T20 format. The powers that be at the moment are looking for something new. The reason they're looking for something new is because they're looking to get bums on seats or eyeballs onto their, onto their, onto their fixture, which is negating the people that play the game in the first place. So we're looking at it as an entertainment rather than a sport. Do you think the Olympics is an, uh, uh, also a part of this? The idea that a 60-ball game would be a potential for inclusion in the Olympics? I think that's... I mean, why would you bother? Why would you bother? I mean, yeah. what would cricket gain out of that? But more to the point, what would the Olympics gain out of that? I mean, th we have... We have enough drama. We have enough of a packed schedule as it is when it comes to no, cricket international. No, I agree. No, I completely agree. It just it seems to be the sort of mode de jour of, of sports like golf. I don't know why golf has gone back into the Olympics again. No idea. Uh, is that doing anything to grow the game globally? I would question whether it is. The argument I suppose you could make is that potentially with cricket being a, a, a sport that, as we saw in the World Cup, you've only got 10 high-class nations. Uh, with potentially one or two fringe nations that that might have yeah. taken part in the World Cup, and it would be it would be nice to I, I would assume that cricket's idea with with cricket being such a cultural sport, how does it go about how does it go about infiltrating new new countries new new nations? And I I think maybe that would be the only argument for getting it into the Olympics. But of course, you'd be looking at a long term plan. You wouldn't be looking at I, I, I mean, this is the argument I sort of throw at rugby to a certain degree is, is, is and, and, and golf. You know, this whole idea that we need to break into new ground. You know, we need to, you know, rugby going to the Japan this year was taking it to new territories and new geographies. It was going to open up to new, sevens rugby is all about, you know, opening it up to a, to, a, to a new audience. Does it need a new audience? Does cricket need a new audience? It's, been, it's followed by billions the world over. Does it need a new audience? It's in a, it's a, it's in a very good place. What it, what, what's happening with cricket at the moment is it's being marketed to an, to an after-work crowd. So we're looking to shorten the game away from, uh, away from the people that want to sit there for four days or five days or whatever, you know, and I, I agree that everyone's cup of tea is not test cricket. But we're looking at, we're looking at fitting, we're looking at, segueing what not even uh, crow, uh, crowbarring um cricket into the end of the day so 
you, you do a day's work and then you are able to watch a game of T20 at the end of it. Though. I mean, but, I don't see the point. But then you think we run the risk at the moment of cricket of watering down the game. What yeah. I mean by watering down the game is there is so many formats coming. I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary. To me, they should decide on three formats currently, let's say, because it, everybody's complaining about the length of a cricket game. But if you watch the Ashes series, which is currently just taking place in, in, in the UK, those stadiums are packed for yeah. five days. And, and, and the interest around it and, 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 and the support that it's gaining and, and, and the audience that it's gaining worldwide. But to your point, I think there's different types of cricket fans in, 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 in the sense that not everyone wants to watch a five-day game. But I just feel bringing in all these different formats, it's going to water down the, the, the game. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. With, with a test series, a good test series is, the, for me, still the best form of the game. Yeah. A bad test series... We've yeah. seen a couple in the subcontinent of late. There's the worst. Uh, yeah. I mean, India absolutely smashing Bangladesh. And you know, when you're winning by an, in, an innings and 240 runs, or what it, whatever it is, people in the crowd. when Virat Kohli's batting for four days straight, yeah, right. you know, I, I just think these, some of these pitches are just not designed for test cricket. You, you need a bit of slope. You need a bit of swing. You need the ball to have spells in the game where the bowler is in the ascendancy. If, if, you're, if you're playing where... You know, the, the, it, it's a it's a batter's pitch, and you're playing Test cricket. That that to me is not a, a, Test cricket relies on those nuances and the, the kind of the ebbing and flowing of the ascendancy between the batter and the bowler. Um, but you know, T20 on the other hand is smash bang wallop. Yeah. It's just uh, I just feel like T10. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement. I think um, <laughs> that there's too ma- there's too many formats. I, I don't agree with you, Fraj Singh. Essentially, I don't know how much he's been paid to start touting the wares of a hundred ball cricket. I j- I, it's gimmicky. It's it, at the end of the day, that's what it is. I think it's gimmicky, and uh, <clears throat> I think the challenge for cricket is, is, as you say, Tom, how to market it, how to make sure that all yeah. the formats stay relevant. I, mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on the the World Test Championship and whether that will change. Because rivalries is another thing. Why are the Ashes so popular? Because that, that, that historic rivalry and, uh, you know, you're fighting for the urn and it's, we don't have enough of that in Test cricket. Right. We've got these arbitrary Test series, but nothing's really on the line. And I don't know whether this Test Championship will, will change that, actually. Too many games as well. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more discussion points right here uh, on The Grill. You're listening to The Grill. We're live here on Dubai I 3.8. In fact, uh, Robbie, Chris and the rest of the team will be speaking to Eddie Jordan. We're going to be speaking or hearing from him in just a few moments' time. Why is he in town? We'll tell you next. Unbelievable goal! This is The Grill, live from Barasti, where the game is always on. Yeah, into the home stretch here down at the rooftop. It's getting a little quieter. John Terry was in the building. He has gone and the crowd went with him, Carl Van Rosenvelt. Fantastic to have John Terry in with us. If you did miss the interview a little earlier, you can find our interview with John Terry from yesterday, which was a special one-hour podcast. No ad breaks, a full 65-minute conversation with the great man. And that's available to watch on our Facebook page, Dubai 103.8 as well. There is some... Big news to bring you from the world of tennis, Carl Van Rosenvelt, because I can tell you that uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas has gone on ahead and beaten Roger Federer in straight sets. You're grimacing. Uh, 6-3, 6-4. He led by a break early in that second set. Federer managed to break back, but Tsitsipas hit straight back and got the decisive break. 6-3, 6-4. So he goes into his first ever ATP Finals final and a great chance for him to finish the season on the absolute high. Um, it'll be Dominic Team taking on Alexander Zverev. Midnight start, that one, here in the UAE. Interesting to see 
how that one's going to go. Dominic Team playing such a brilliant match against Novak Djokovic earlier on in the week. Alexander Zverev himself impressive as well. And of course, the defending champion. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a fantastic final. Obviously, <laughs> what should I say? Not too delighted to see Federer, except that uh, I always said, you know, when, when, the ga when the games are so close to each other, Federer does, you know, tend to struggle a little bit. He needs that recovery, of course, at the age of 38. But yeah, as you say, Tetsipa is very, very exciting. I think it will make for a great, great final. And uh, as I say, what a great way for, for either of those players to, to finish their, their year. Interesting to see how Federer will prepare now. I guess we'll see him at the Australian Open. He has promised that he'll be back in Dubai at the Dubai Duty Free in February. So, uh, yeah, we'll be good to see. And kind of, to me, it will be interesting to see how he plans next year, Robbie. If, if that's going to be his final swan song uh, or, or if he wants to kick on after that. I know he said he'll play to the Olympics, but will, will he call it a day at the Olympics? Or will he, if, if Nadal gets that 20th, uh, Grand Slam title, which I do kind of fancy him for the French Open. Will Federer turn around? Oh, you fancy him for the French Open, do you? you. Nadal. Yeah, of course. The man that's won 12 of them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, I, he's got to stop. He's got to stop eventually. I mean, he, that, that's the thing. You, but you always say that. And then he goes ahead and, and he finds a way to win it as well. But uh, I just feel that Roger Federer, even at the age of 40 in a couple of years time, he'll fancy himself at Wimbledon. Well, in all honesty, he should have won Wimbledon this year. He should have won it. I mean, you know, I, th I think you know, like John Terry talks about having nightmares about 2008. I think Federer, that game will keep him awake for many, many nights still. And, uh, you know, on match point, should, he should have finished it off. And in all honesty, and I'm sure he'd be the first one to admit it. But unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. So, as you say, let the young generation come in. We wish Tetsipas all the best for the Are you excited final. by the young generation? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Is there not one single player? Who you think, hang on a minute, Daniel Medvedev, for example, no. 23 years of age, no? No, just, 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 just uh, as, I, as I said, uh, somebody told me the other day, Carl, you're getting old. Yes, I must probably am getting old. But I still, to me, the, 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 the three that, that, that are still have dominated the game for so long, I just think it's so tough to replace them, honestly. I just there's, think only, there's only one name that I, I mean, I, I know that I've, I've said this to you in the past and everything, and I know that you are not in agreement with me and we're going over old ground here, but... Uh, Nick Kyrgios is, is, is the man that you know I'm going to say to you. I think that he is, he's not everyone's cup of tea. Not everyone agrees with the way he goes about it. But what he is, is a stadium filler. He is a stadium filler. And he is therefore very important to uh, the ATP moving forward. I just think he needs to wake up sooner than later because I think he might be one of those players that wakes up at the age of 30 and realizes, you know what, I could have had an absolutely fantastic career if I did a couple of things a bit differently. And to me, and I've said this before with Kyrgios, does he have the talent by all means? I just think he needs somebody special to work with him. Who, who he's already said it. He said he doesn't want it enough. And that's the thing. He's yeah. not prepared to... Um, and this is not a criticism per se because I think there's an expectation from us, the watching public and the watching world, that every single professional athlete needs to be the most driven and, uh, and determined and passionate and, and kind of, uh, and con uh, um, you know, uh, committed and, con uh, and concerted person but, that they can be. And, and Nick Kyrgios just, just isn't that, that individual. But, he's, he's happy just being on tour, occasionally, you know, uh, producing absolute brilliance, but, but fully aware that unless he fundamentally changes his approach and, and, his, and his kind of patterns of, of, of how he prepares for a match and what have you, he will not win a Grand Slam. He'll never win a Grand Slam. But don't, don't, and I think he's accepted that. Don't, don't you feel Andre Agassi was a little bit like that in the early parts of his career? Maybe oh, come not, on. I mean, Nick Kyrgios is 26 now. 25, 27. I mean, he's, he's not young anymore. But, 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 to, but to me, if you look at the likes of, of, of Agassi, we even saw... Agassi won Wimbledon at 23. No, it was 1992 that Fair he point. won... 
Fair point. He won. He won Wimbledon. I mean, I get it. I mean, in terms of someone who's a bit of a, a kind of. Uh, yeah, made a lot of promise but didn't quite deliver. Yes, <laughs> someone well, who, yeah. who was certainly, you know, not not conventional. I, in, I just the feel that some through. of the some of these players, even Capriati, to a certain extent, in the latter stage of their, their their career, maybe from a mental perspective, they kind of more there. And and often it happens when they get a special type of person to work with them. And I think Kyrgios, to me, that's his last 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 chance at it. He, he needs some call it a mentor, call it a coach, call it whatever it need be to come in. And try and change him, but if you believe he's not changeable, then I agree. Then he will never win. But I believe if you can change him, he does have the potential to win. Let's talk uh, Formula One if we can for a moment, because Lewis Hamilton has pipped Red Bull's Max Verstappen to fastest time in the final practice at the Brazilian Grand Prix. The Mercedes driver who sealed his sixth world title two weeks ago over in the U.S. was 0.026 seconds quicker than the Flying Dutchman. The two were a comfortable margin ahead of the Ferraris with Leclerc third, uh, about 2.91 seconds off the pace and 0.053 seconds ahead of teammate Sebastian Vettel. All roads lead to Yas Island. Yeah, they do. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a week later, I think, this time around, the, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, December the 1st. Sunday, December the 1st will be race day. Of course, we're, we're used to seeing no title on the line. That, that hasn't happened, I believe, since Rosberg won a few seasons ago over Lewis Hamilton. It's disappointing that the last three years have, have been processions, really, for Lewis. Um, you know, he, he just he, he has no rival at the moment. And, uh, OK, Bottas has, has done well in the Mercedes. Vettel has, has underperformed this year. We've seen the emergence of, of Charles Leclerc. Max Verstappen is, is fantastically talented and a, a hugely exciting prospect. But Lewis Hamilton just once again proving, and we've talked and debated long and hard about this, as to why he hasn't really perhaps received the acclaim that, that a sixth world title really warrants. Because he's now moved into a, a class of his own, just one behind Michael Schumacher in, in the Pantheon. But he's, he's moved ahead of Fangio. He's two ahead of Vettel. And uh, he just hasn't been... Um, he, he hasn't been acclaimed like perhaps we would have expected him to be. I wonder whether that is, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, that, you know, whether, whether that's something that is, is factored into the sort of decision-making of those behind the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Is, you know, they, they wanted a marquee Grand Prix. They, they, you know, they went after the final Grand Prix of the season for, for a long time. They made, no, they made no secret of the fact that they, they wanted that one, you know, because it is one of the sort of standout Grand Prix. The first one of the season, the last one of the season are, are your bookends, if you like, of, of, of the season. The fact that it has been not so much a non-event, I think that's been too negative, but the fact that there's nothing on the line over the course of the last three, four seasons, whether that is part of the, the factoring in of what I'm assuming is more sponsorship money to have the final Grand Prix of the I season. I think it's just, it's just indicative of the way that F1 has, has gone. It's that Actually, the competitive element is probably the least important element of the entire week. Yeah. You've got the entertainment. Yeah. You know, F1 has built a, a nucleus, a world around it, where the Grand Prix and the, the, the Drivers' Championship, as, in, as important as, as it is to them and, and obviously fans of the sport, you know, people are going to go down there because they want to go to the concerts. They're going to go down there to experience a day at the, at the Yas Marina circuit to see the, the qualifying, to, to see the race. It's less about, I think, who, who, who is actually winning the race. And, and that's such a weird thing to say, but it, it's kind of the, 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 the anti-climax in a sense, I don't think harms that week because it's still 
growing. It's it's still F1 perhaps do a better job than any other sport of of bringing that entertainment component. You were just saying earlier on that you feel that Lewis Hamilton hasn't quite got the recognition or, or respect for being a six-time world champion. Do you feel that maybe in this era of Formula One drivers, he's never really had a rivalry? Where in past years, when you look at Formula One champions, there's always been, I mean, obviously a lot of people always speak about the Prost-Senna rivalry. There, there was always, you know, guys that really gave each other. Uh, you speak about James Hunt back in the, uh, back in the day with um, Nicky Lauda, etc., etc., have we come to a stage now where Lewis hasn't really had a rivalry? I mean, we speak about the last one where him and Rosberg were really going up against other. And to me, that kind of created more, more of, a, of a hype for, for supporters and followers of, of F1 than currently, currently what's happening. Because I just feel that there's nobody that's really competing with him. And I think that's also due to Mercedes doing such a great job that the other manufacturers can't quite keep the consistency. Uh, I think that... A lot, the point has been made that Ferrari, these last three seasons, have probably had the better car than Mercedes. A, a lot of people would argue that. Lewis Hamilton is that good that he's managed to see off the challenge of a four-time world champion in Sebastian Vettel, who, who has fallen off. There's no doubt about it. Vettel, um, whether it's psychological, whether it's, it's his reflexes going, I'm not sure. Um, but he's, he's not the driver that he was when he won all those titles with Red Bull. There's no doubt about that. But Ferrari's car has been competitive. Um, there was a two-season rivalry between uh, Nico Rosberg and, and Lewis Hamilton, which, as you say, definitely added. And, and I watched the documentary Senna uh, a few weeks ago. I hadn't seen it, and it was, it was brilliant. It was compelling. Alain Prost, Ayrton Senna, just a different world, wasn't it? Just the, the, the personalities of the F1 drivers and the, the, there was just... Um, it was just it was more gladiatorial back then than it is now and that that's just a, a sad kind of uh, development in in the world of f1 that that uh, that technology is it has kind of taken over the sport to some extent that no one really knows how much of it is the driver and how much of it is the car i think that's definitely a that's something that has harmed the amount of acclaim that has come the way of lewis hamilton and, and that's something that we discussed tom when we caught up yeah. with uh, the former team boss Eddie Jordan which we can actually hear from if you missed this interview uh, we did play it out on, on off script but it's definitely worth another listen because it was the question that we had to put to Eddie Jordan about Lewis Hamilton he's, he's dominated so much of that conversation in the past couple of weeks since he wrapped up a sixth world title where according to Eddie one of the greats of the sport a team owner a man who's worked with the likes of Schumacher and Senna where does Lewis Hamilton rank? I was particularly lucky because um, I I, I got advised to get out of the driving thing by, by funnily enough, Nicky Lauda. We were all in the same team, and he said, Eddie, you'd be far better off running a team. And I thought he was being insulting to me. He didn't think I was good enough. <laughs> he did me the best favor I could possibly ever have done. And then he kind of had a guiding hand, and we were fabulously good pals. Um, so I miss him terribly, I must tell you. So does Lewis, by the way, because uh, he, Lewis wouldn't have won what he has already won without Nicky Lauda. So uh, a little... Uh, a little memory bank there because he was a great guy. But I have first-hand experience uh, of both Senna and Schumacher because they've both driven my cars. Um, of those two, I'm going to shock you or surprise you here, but I actually think um, my favourite, or my opinion, the best-ever driver is neither of those two. I actually think it was um, Alan Prost um, mm. because he won four world titles uh, he was beaten for one by half a point and in another championship by one point. So uh, 
why do I think he's better than Michael Schumacher, who won seven? And it's simple, because at the time, uh, and I, I don't want this to be sort of just a slagging somebody off, Michael Schumacher was an outstanding driver, but I just didn't like one aspect of what he did, and that was that he, he controlled, uh, through Ferrari and through Jean Todt, he controlled all the activities of his teammates. And, you know, at the time, whether it was Stefan Johansson or Jean Alessi, uh, Eddie Irvine, Barry Kello, Vissikela, uh, I managed all those drivers because they were all Jordan drivers, and, and they went to Ferrari. So I know what the contract was like. And uh, Michael Schumacher wouldn't allow a teammate in there if he didn't have the right to be able to request him to move over. And, you know, I think that's going against the brilliance that Michael Schumacher was. I think it just leaves a small little taste. And I have difficulty. I want to say he's the best. Um, but at the moment, I do believe that Lewis Hamilton has, has passed him. Absolutely. Interesting. So for you then, Eddie, and listen, I bow down to your superior knowledge when it comes to all things F1. Alan Prost, for you, the greatest. And for you, Lewis Hamilton is even ahead of Michael. Ayrton Senna's no, no, I think now Lewis is ahead of him. I think Lewis is, I think already Lewis, is the sixth championship. Now Lewis is number one. I would probably put Prost number two. And it's a toss-up between, between Senna. You know, most people's heart will tell you that they want Senna's. And they think he was the best because he was the darling of the crowd. He, he obviously, he, he died while racing, which has a, a, an impact. But, you know, he wasn't, we weren't able to see how great he really, really, really was. Because, you know, with the championships that he won, he could have done anything because he was such a, but he was a, a wonderfully nice person. And that's not to say that Michael Schumacher is not a nice person, but he was a different type of person. And, uh, you know, he, he, he got things done for him and, and fair play, that, that, that involves power and ability, and you don't get to that level unless you're quite an awesome driver. So um, I don't want to say anything bad uh, or misleading about Michael. It's just that I think that Lewis Hamilton is already the best driver we've ever had. So there you have it. Lewis Hamilton, according to Eddie Jordan, according to a lot of people, actually. I think Jensen Button says something similar. Nico Rosberg, his former rival, who they had such a bitter rivalry for those two seasons that they were teammates, also said Lewis Hamilton's the best. And... I don't know. I'm I'm more inclined to go on championships, and uh, and you know we always we always use those as the benchmark. Whether it's major championships in golf, whether it's Grand Slams in tennis, I still think that until Lewis Hamilton surpasses Michael Schumacher, I still think that Michael Schumacher is the greatest of all time, just based purely on how many world titles he won. Yeah, Robbie, you also thought that Pete Sampras was a greater tennis <laughs> no, player. No, I did Roger not. Federer. No, but, but, but on a more serious <laughs> note, I, I, I was quite surprised to hear him say that he thought Prost was a better driver than Senna and Schumacher. Yeah, to me, the that, professor, to, to, the, the, I who, mean, who was not, who, who again was, uh, and if you watch the documentary, you see that Senna's the flare driver yeah. and Prost is the mechanic. He's the, he's the kind of, he's the guy that calculates where he needs to finish. Different eras, I mean, different generations, and it was a different sport back then. But uh, the conversation with Eddie continues because I had to ask him as well, would Lewis have won those world titles the last couple of seasons if he'd been driving a Ferrari? Oh, yes. Oh, God. Yeah, I think that Ferrari is a fantastic car. And uh, I think Ferrari have a good chance coming forward. Um, and I'm not going to give you a little scoop, but I think that uh, I know that Ferrari are desperate to get Max Verstappen. And I think if they could get Max Verstappen and Leclerc in there, that would be uh, a great job for Ferrari. Because uh, at the end of the day, most people want Ferrari to, to win races. And at the moment, 
um, Vettel, he's hot and cold, isn't he? I mean, he, he's mama. You never know what you're getting. And uh, whereas Leclerc is such a really high-quality individual, and boy, can he drive that car. He is going to be a big star. But the, the real darling of the lot and the future world champion um, is obviously Max Verstappen, who most people would like to see possibly in a Ferrari and certainly not in the Mercedes, where, you know, I know Mercedes will roll the boat out to try and get him. Charles Leclerc coming into Ferrari and, uh, and in many ways overshadowing Sebastian Vettel this season. Do you feel like a, a significant comeback is beyond Vettel now? Uh, I, I do. Well, he has recovered a little bit. I mean, Singapore and a few other races, you know, he... he he, he spat the dummy, didn't he? And he just didn't uh, <laughs> didn't ingratiate himself um, for for a, a nice guy. And he now fully sees that that uh, Leclerc is ahead of him in the pecking order. And if he hasn't seen that, um, but even as a driver, you're always supposed to believe you're the best. You're the best. You're the best. Um, I mean, he, he's not totally blind. He can see the figures. He sees the results every race, every testing, every qualifying, and every moment that go in the car. And Leclerc is a little bit ahead of him so um, I think he's on borrowed time if it was me with all the championships that he's got I'd, I'd retire go, go quickly I think it's a great thing in life and that is know when to go um, and, and never leave it too long because then people get upset or they get just bitter and stuff like that and he's been a great champion I'd rather remember him as he was um, rather than seeing him struggle over the future and just be beaten on a weekly basis uh, by his teammate that wouldn't be helpful so, Eddie Jordan there, ushering Sebastian Vettel into a, a swift retirement. I might point out, Sebastian Vettel is younger than Lewis Hamilton. Um, he's 32, Sebastian Vettel. So, for an F1 driver, you'd think that if he wanted to, uh, and, you know, we saw Nico Rosberg retire, I think, at 31, but uh, you'd think that he would have quite a few seasons left in him. It's just a case of, you know, he's the top dog at Ferrari in terms of the fact he's a four-time world champion. Charles Leclerc is the new kid on the block. He's the upstart. Um, you know, if he's pushed out of Ferrari, there's nowhere really for him to go, CVR. That, that, that was going to be my next question to you. If you were the Ferrari owner, do you keep Sebastian Vettel in the team? Uh, do you run the risk, if you're doing that, of, of placing um, Sebastian Vettel, who, is, who, who may not be capable of challenging and beating Lewis Hamilton, when if you were to give Charles Leclerc the responsibility or if you were to give Max Verstappen the responsibility in a Ferrari of being the main man, would that mean that they were better able to challenge for a world title? To, to me, if you look at all the, the great teams of, of Formula One as such, there was always a number one and a number two. Yeah. I mean, we remember Schumacher and, Bar and that's why Barrichello. Senna, Senna and, and Prost could never be teammates. Exa they were teammates, but they, it was a disaster. Absolute disaster. And, and to me, bringing... Max Verstappen into Ferrari would end up in a disaster because him and Leclerc don't want to be number two. They both want to be number one drivers. So unless Patel decides to say, okay, fine, I will take up the responsibility as being the number two driver and Leclerc, I would then, I would then keep him in the Ferrari team. But to me, you can't have Max, who's clearly the number one at Red Bull at the moment, you can't have him and Leclerc in the same team. It's like having Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton in Mercedes-Benz. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. And, and look, Mercedes have got the, the perfect balance because Bottas is is the kind of character who uh, who won't challenge. He won't. He won't. Nico Rosberg, you know, laid down the challenge to Lewis Hamilton, and that's why they fell out because there was a genuine rivalry. There was a, a, a genuine kind of there was respect, but there was also a healthy kind of uh, a, a healthy kind of dislike in in many quarters to to those two. And uh, 
And that's and as F1 fans, as as fans of motorsport, we want to see that. At the end of the day, you're listening to Dubai Island 3.8. You've been listening to The Grill. We've been broadcasting live from Brest, where the game is always on. In fact, we're going to play out with a bit of Eddie Jordan. Not, though, before I said a big thank you to all of the team down here. CVR, thank you, mate. Thank you, Tom. Great to see you, and uh, great to see you resurrect your career again. <laughs> Hope to see you on many more pictures <laughs> in the UAE. Give it a rest. Uh, Robbie Greenfield, great. Thank you very much indeed for all your expertise. Thank you very much. No, absolute pleasure as always. Uh, and, of course, thanks to all the team down here uh, at Barasti Beach. Thank you very much indeed for being with us, and, of course, all the team back in the studio as well i promised you a bit more eddie what's he got to say yeah well we're talking a little bit more about the environmental impact of formula one and how the drive to promote environmentally conscious motoring certainly in the automotive industry how that will impact formula one and the regulations that are set to come in in uh, in of course 2021 as well eddie had a lot to say about that it's fair to say he's not the biggest fan of some of these impending changes i'm coming from a stance where uh, I was brought up on uh, the smell of Castellar and, and racing like it was, uh, and of course it's changed. Am I disappointed? Yes, I am, because I think Formula One is not as exciting at the moment uh, as it should be or that it has been. Um, however, having said that, we are somewhat lucky that you know, we have somebody of the style and the standard of Lewis Hamilton winning his sixth title. I think that's very positive for Formula One, irrespective of what his nationality is, is just what he's doing and what he's creating is something magical. Um, so that's that positive aspect. On the negative aspect, I, I've seen now for a great number of years Formula E, which is the electric version, and I just have to think, you know, it needs to grow and it needs to grow quickly. And I think it needs, you know, Formula One exists on a couple of things. It exists on power, it exists on noise, and, you know, it's just a sexy sport we've got to be really careful that we don't kill that aspect of the business. Um, and we need people and families and children and mothers and daughters and everybody coming to Grand Prix racing. And I just feel at the moment that I think there are too many races uh, and very often um, less is more. In this case, they're doing it the other way around. Uh, whereas I think they're making more or less. Uh, purely my view, um, I don't want to be totally outspoken on this, but at the end of the day, I've got to say what I believe. And I think that I'm, I'm one of the creatures who believe that what Bernie Eccleston did um, wasn't all perfect, but he certainly had great vision and he was able to inspire and, and see. Like, he was the first to come to the Middle East. He was the first to go to places like China and, and uh, South America and various. He had a great vision. And um, I just believe that uh, at the moment we're trying to do everything. I mean, the latest I hear is going and doing a Grand Prix in a car park in the middle of Miami. I, I just don't see that. that. That's not what I want to see happening of our sport going forward. It's interesting, Eddie, you mentioned there that less is more, and I must say I agree fundamentally with that. We've got Vietnam added to the calendar next year, which means even more racing. If we continue on this path, and I hate to do this, but we've got to, if changes are not are coming, where does Formula One go in the next five years? Well, let's just tackle the Vietnam. Um, Vietnam is obviously an exciting venue, and they've obviously done their study and their homework, and they're probably going to get the crowds there, hopefully. But there are some races that just aren't working. So they, they cancelled, for example, uh, Malaysia. Um, is China working? China's gone through a difficult period in terms of the whole environment there and uh, their commercial structure. 
So they're not getting the people to go to it. And will the promoters, will they cancel it? I don't know. What I don't really want to happen is suddenly we're going to a race um, in England or in Silverstone one week, one year, and then the following year it's cancelled. You know, I just, I want continuity and I want excitement. I want, I, I, I know what dates in my head at the Grand Prix, and I have done for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Now there's so many of them that mm-hmm. I am actually confused and I don't know where, I don't know where this is going to end. And they're still talking about more and more races. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.